Welcome to the podcast, Whiskey and a Map. Stories of adventure and expeditions as told by those who live them. I'm your host, Michael Reinhardt. It has been said that many adventures and expeditions start simply with a map and a glass of whiskey. A desire to go and see the world's wild places. You're invited to pull up a chair, pour yourself a glass of your favorite whiskey, and join us as we hear stories from another one of our friends just returned from the field. Welcome and come on in. I'd like to introduce you to a friend of mine, Megan Buchanan. Megan is an aerospace engineer, adventure athlete, and motivational speaker. Megan faced adversity from an early age, when her family learned she was dyslexic at the age of seven. Determined to overcome this disability, she pursued a career in aerospace engineering, where she has come to work on spacecraft designs. In 2011, Megan suffered a life-threatening snowboarding accident, severely breaking her femur. Told she was lucky to be alive and that she'd have a cane for the rest of her life, Megan once again persevered and set a goal to take on the world's highest summits. Megan has since summited Mount Kilimanjaro, Aconcagua, Elbrus and Denali, Mount Vinson, skied the last degree to the South Pole, all on her first attempt. Her quest continues, and this spring she'll be returning to complete the climb of Mount Everest. Megan is dedicated to becoming the first rocket scientist to complete the seven summits, as well as be the first U.S. woman to complete the Adventures Grand Slam. Megan? You are a woman of some extraordinary talents, uh, <laughs> aerospace engineer, literally a rocket scientist, an accomplished mountaineer. But one of the descriptors you have for yourself is as an adventure athlete. What does that mean to be an adventure athlete? Um, good question. I looked, you know, when, when, when I started kind of putting this all together and I was getting to a level that this was a main goal of mine to do the Grand Slam. I was trying to figure out how I describe that to people. There's endurance athletes that you hear all the time. And I'm like, well, I think more of an endurance runner. There's extreme athletes, which, you know, skydiving, the squirrel suits, all the different things. I, and nothing really spoke to me. Or, or when, I, when I came up with it, I, I didn't feel that I necessarily was legit enough to call myself a professional mountaineer. I just didn't feel I could claim that yet. And so to me, I was like, I love adventure and that's why I'm doing this. And I'm so driven by it. And I'm on this mission. And I felt that I was more of adventure athlete because it's not just the mountaineering and the climbing. I look back at my life and I randomly would go run with the bulls because I decided to do it. Or I, it is more the adventure and what it, releases in me and helps me to grow as a human being that really calls to me. And so I couldn't just call myself a mountaineer. I needed something. And to me, adventure athlete summed it up a little bit better. Nice. Now, before we get to your adventures, do you have a good drinking story for us? Yes. And to share with your audience, I did have to, most of my drinking stories probably end up in it's not PG thirteen scenarios or things I've seen, so we're we're going to keep this one. We're going to keep this one to the fun drinking stories. And and you know, I one of the things is um, wine is such a huge huge passion of mine. It always has been. I actually used to do uh, a lot of fundraisers with wine dinners, and I got to know a lot of people in the wine industry. But one of the fun things I started doing is take a bottle of wine on every summit that I do, and usually a picture with it at summit, and then and then we drink it afterwards. And and there is nothing that tastes better than a bottle of wine that you carry to the summit of a crazy mountain and then to drink it after. Aconcagua, Elbrus, Kilimanjaro took full bottle of wine in my pack. And it was on Elbrus in Russia, which is a great mountain. It's one of the shorter ones you can do. And, and really the fun part about that is traveling through Moscow and St. Petersburg and enjoying. But I had a bottle of wine in my backpack and we were um, on summit day and in the saddle. And I started getting this really bad cramping in my stomach. Um, it turns out later, uh, I did end up in a St. Petersburg hospital because I had eaten something wrong, but I didn't know it at the time. My stomach was cramping really, really bad. And, and I was like, I have got to get rid of weight. Wait, I don't know what I'm going to, I start dumping water because I had a ridiculous amount of water. And then I remember I went 
to go grab the wine. And I had a wine opener in my bag because we were going to try to drink it at Summit. And I was like, that's it. That's it. The wine has to go. The wine has to go. And I went to put, take the cork out and everyone yelled at me. They're like, no, don't do the wine. And this is like one of our guides. He's like, I'll carry your water for you. Just do not throw out that wine. And so they talked some sense into me, which is funny because really, is it sensible to carry a bottle of wine up a mountain? No, it's not. So I carried the bottle up. I've got a picture of it um, at Summit in Elbrus. We made it. And then we descended and that, and then at that camp that we were at, we all drank that bottle of wine. And it was like this little team effort. And there is nothing better than drinking like an amazing, expensive Cabernet in a tin or plastic cup. (laughs) It tasted really good. Much sweeter because of worse, Ben. Exactly. You're literally a rocket scientist, aerospace engineer. You've worked on something called spacecraft survivability. Yes. But the path to become a rocket scientist was particularly challenging for you. You have a learning disability called dyslexia, do you not? Yes, yes. It does not go away. (laughs) How did you overcome? Well, first of all, for people who don't know what dyslexia is, what is that? So dyslexia is a, um, it's categorized as a learning disability. Um, Those of us in in the learning disabilities world, we actually call them learning differences. Um, There's a lot of different uh, ones that you can have. You can have auditory, you can have verbal, physical. Your brain interprets differently, mainly um, uh, language, written language, A lot of times for me, what it will be is my eyes will completely cross what's there. Things will jump. I will read and I cannot retain what I've read. Um, I have to very much focus. It took a lot as a child to learn how to focus in and uh, uh, retain what I would learn. I was very lucky. I had very attentive parents. My parents, my father was a Rhodes Scholar to MIT and an engineer. That's where I followed after him. And I started reading at three, but really in second grade, I couldn't spell. And the the teacher berated me horribly. I mean, harassed me so badly that I I refused to read. And my mom's like, what is going on? So when we got tested and and they pretty much said, we're so sorry, Miss Buchanan, but your daughter has dyslexia and she will not achieve much academically. And I love this story because it is completely true. And my mom sat me down and pretty much said, sweet girl, you could be anything you want to be. You are just going to have to work harder than everybody else. And that starts today. And my mom suffered no fools. (laughs) My dad was extremely kind and patient and compassionate. My mom was strong and that was the day that really this whole thing I call grit started. So uh, there were no excuses. I just had to work harder. Um, and this is actually a really huge passion of mine, um, learning disabilities. Again, I'm so lucky I got diagnosed. So many people are not diagnosed in their lives. They grow up just feeling stupid, less than, even though I was diagnosed and I had supportive parents, the shame I would feel, the embarrassment I would feel. So how did you overcome that learning challenge and, you know, uh, accomplish literally becoming uh, an engineer designing and working on spacecraft? It was complete stubbornness. (laughs) It was this, this drive inside from, from literally just not feeling good enough. And again, I had supportive parents, but it was a fire in my belly to prove myself. And really, as an adult, I know now, I thought it was to prove to others I'm good enough, but really it was that drive to prove to myself that I was smart enough. I love talking to, I am am smart. I I am an engineer. I, I went to school, elementary, high school. If I listened, I retained everything. I got A's. It wasn't until I got to college where the reading was so intensive that I really got into trouble. And um, I could hide it. I could hide it younger, but I couldn't hide it in college anymore. And I struggled. I failed. Um, I had a semester of suspension because of academics. 
And it was when I finally had to go back to the university and declare myself as someone with learning disabilities before I could get accommodations. And then my grades improved. And that was a big step for me because I had to admit that I had a disability. And that's how it was treated at that age. And that was that was a huge step for me. And so it was, yeah, it was this drive inside myself to keep proving that I was just as smart as everybody else and I could do it. And and it was I, my father was such a special man in my life. And my brother and sister do not have dis, any learning disabilities. They're they're brilliant, book smart. And I think it was also for me a way to. I wanted to prove, like, follow after my father. And even though he was supportive, which is so crazy, I felt like I wanted him to be proud of me. And he always was. But again, it was just that drive inside to prove to everyone else that I was smart enough to be an engineer when, when schools and tell, tell me over and over again, you aren't good enough. You aren't good enough. And I was like, you'll see, I'm good enough. <laughs> in 2011, you were involved in a in a pretty horrific snowboarding accident. But before we get to there, describe your life in 2010. <laughs> oh my gosh, 2010. I had to, because I think I broke my leg when I was 33. So early 30s, working, you know, an awesome job in Denver, every weekend up with friends in Vail, Colorado, um, young professional, I mean, life was it, it like it was just amazing. Life was fantastic at the time. I thought, you know, I was just on this career path, living the dream, no care in the world. Really still at that point in my life where um hadn't faced a lot of additional tragedy except for, you know, getting through dyslexia, being a female an engineer had its challenges. But at that point, yeah, just living my best life probably in 2010. <laughs> then let's go to that accident in 2011. What happened? I was just with my friends and we were in the back bowls of Vail. Crazy powder day. We knew where to go um, and, and find the powder way tucked up in the trees. And I was behind my, my girlfriend who's ex-US ski team. I bored. She was skiing. And we were hauling down a tree line and there was a cut through and I swished in this big lump of powder. There was a downed tree, a ginormous downed tree. So I hit it dead on right on my hip at about 25 miles an hour. And it threw me back. The femur bone pretty much had been completely, the top of the femur bone had been decapitated off, spiral fractured down, muscles ripped off. It was very, very bad. And, and I knew I couldn't get up. I was, I had to figure out if I was going to throw up or pass out. I decided to do neither. I just lay there, but my friends were there. We called ski patrol. Ski patrol couldn't find us. By the time they got to us, I think I'd been in the snow for about an, an hour. The good thing was I was in powder. So it almost was keeping me frozen. Um, they got there. The bad thing was uh, uh, Bryce, who's his head of ski patrol, he called in. He's like, femur break, possible hip fracture. And I remember hearing that and thinking, who are they talking about? <laughs> and it was, so it, I was like, what? I was in so much shock and nauseous, but my, my body didn't feel the pain. It wasn't until they went to move my leg. And at that point, I remember he's like, Megan, we, we have to get you ready to get you down. You're bleeding internally. This is not good. You're not going to like this. And I think smart ass, I said, Giddy up cowboy. There's only one way off this mountain. Let's do it. I did not realize what was about to happen. It literally felt like someone was trying to jump, like shove lava up my veins and rip my leg off. I begged him to punch me out. And, you know, just, and he's like, I can't do that. Anyway, it was a, a crazy rescue out of the back bowls of ale. It was emergency surgery. I woke up um, to a 14 inch rod down the center of my femur. And they told me at 33 years old, your life is going to be in a wheelchair or a cane. That is like, you almost died. You're lucky to be alive. And I just remember completely on crazy drugs in the hospital. I was there for about eight days because I'd lost so much blood. It was day to day, whether I need a transfusion. But I just remember when I come in and out of consciousness thinking like, okay, well, when I'm out of this bed, we're going to make this different. And um, I just think from everything I'd learned in my life, 
I didn't take no for an answer. I didn't take a diagnosis as an answer. And my next battle, one of the biggest battles of my life started for over two years, rehabbing that leg to get me where I needed to be. And, and in a year and a half of extreme 24 seven pain, because it turns out I was allergic to the titanium in my leg. <laughs> so then they had to take that out. Sorry, but all I could think about, all I could think about was hiking again and being in the mountains. And I sorry, I get so emotional. Um, that is my love. And like, that was the thing that I would always do with my father. And that was the thing as a kid, that was my release. That's where I felt normal. That's where I felt good when I felt so bad about my learning disability. And it was my dad's and my thing. And my dad and I had climbed Kilimanjaro before the accident. And all I could think about was going back to Everest Base Camp and climbing Kilimanjaro and just getting my life back. They took the titanium rod out. And after a year and a half, I could not walk up a flight of stairs without my cane and a railing. I had full cane. I could not walk without it. And then after one month of that rod being out, I could walk upstairs. And actually within six months, I went and did the the climb to Everest base camp. And then after that, I repeated Kilimanjaro. And that is when I found a different level of strength. Like I had never known, not just physically, but mentally at this point. And I was like, I, I felt invincible because I had pushed my way through this injury that every doctor told me to stop trying. And so at that point, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to go do something higher. I'm going to try Aconcagua. And I did that. Before we go yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about the climb on Kilimanjaro that second, that second time. Um, y- yeah, well, that one's emotional for a different reason. So um, it, was, it was amazing. I went with a group of people who... It was actually for a charity and a huge group of people, some really close friends of mine, and actually a whole bunch of cancer survivors as well. So it was so amazing to be a part of that. But that second climb felt so easy to me, felt so easy. And it was also emotional because in this time, I had lost my father. And it, um, it, so it was very special for me to be at Summit on Kilimanjaro and feel his, my dad was still with me. His presence was with me. And that's, that's really where I, I was just like, I know you're with me, dad. I know you helped me get through this and we're going to keep climbing together. And so, yeah, it was a really, Kilimanjaro the second time was a very, very special climb for me. And, and, and yeah, that's, I think that's where all the rest of it, that whole idea of like, I'm going to do the next thing. That's where it was born. Summit of Kilimanjaro the second time. (laughs) Are you sitting at the top of the summit, Kilimanjaro? looking out over the savannas, the grasslands, and Tanzania. Is that where the idea of the seven summits came? Um, uh, you No, know, I guess, like, I just knew I wanted to do something more because it felt so easy. So that's where I decided Aconcagua. It was Aconcagua where I decided the seven summits after I finished that one. And I actually had, because I was down drinking wine, imagine that, <laughs> in Mendoza after Aconcagua. And I, I was doing this tasting and met this awesome couple. And this woman, um, she's 29, and that was her seventh summit. And I, I was like, when did you do Everest? And she had done it when she was 19. And I was like, how on earth did you even think about that? And it's because she um, is actually lineage of George Mallory's family. And like married into it, I think, and you know, twice removed or whatever, but they were on a sponsored trip. It was her father, her brother and her did it when she was 19. And I was, I was in awe. And she is the one who she's like, what, what'd you think of Aconcagua? And I'm like, it, it was awesome. She's like, was it easy? I was like, oh, I don't want to say, it. yeah, it was easy. <laughs> and she's like, you can do Everest. She's like, go do Denali and you can do Everest. And that is when I, um, yeah, that was when in Mendoza sipping fantastic wine, I was like, yeah, okay, uh, I'm doing this. This is what I'm going to do. And then that's, that's just started knocking them off after that and and improving my skills. Yeah, of course. So Kilimanjaro is 19,300 feet, not a particularly technical climb, but Aconcagua, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Very good. (laughs) um, 22,000. 838 feet, yes. tallest mountain in South America. South America. Yes. It was a you good knocked one. off 
that mountain. Mm-hmm. Two of the seven. Which came next? Next was Elbrus. Oh, Elbrus. Was that? Oh, gosh. Was that one or was it Denali now? It was Elbrus. Nope. Elbrus was next. <laughs> yeah. Tallest mountain in Europe, 18,510 yeah. feet. Mm-hmm. And then comes Denali. I don't think Denali really gives maybe outside a small circle of uh, mountaineers the the credit it deserves because that is a difficult mountain in in anybody's book. She is a mean lady, Denali. <laughs> right? That one, that is that is your that's where you're on like varsity versus JV. It really is. That one will make you see God. <laughs> Yeah. It has just legendarily nasty weather. It's technically difficult. Tell us about your experience on Denali. Yeah. And that is, first of all, I, yeah, it's, it is a beast. And we had people on the team that this was going to be like their fourth attempt at Denali. And, and so went in and, and I definitely had done, um, I had gone and done a, a lot of skills prep week long course in Mount Baker, Um, It is important to me. I am not one of those people that shows up and like, okay, let's just go do this. I'll figure it out on the way. I I want, I don't want to be that guy. (laughs) I want, you know, I want to be studied and skilled and deserve to be there. Cause we all see, we've all seen people that, you know, again, Everest is not where you learn to to repel. That's not where you go to learn to repel. Um, So Denali, what I love about it, is it is different than the other mountains as well, because what people don't understand is it's unsupported, which means you are with, you can be with a mountaineering group, but, but you do not have porters. You do not have Sherpas. You and your team are carrying everything and you have to carry everything on in, and you have to carry everything out, all your trash, human waste, everything. You've got 50 to 60 pound pack, 50 to 60 pound sled behind you. And Denali does not care if you are male or female, It does not care if you're 120 pounds, 220 pounds, you carry the same stuff. It is this, especially as a woman, it is a beautiful equalizer where all your hard work you've put in, no one, no one can take that away from you or say you didn't do the same amount of work. Everyone does the same work and everyone respects each other. And that's such a beautiful feeling. Um, So yeah, so it is, it is a grind. And when you are, and and there are times I remember just slugging through one step at a time. And just, that's when you start talking to yourself and you're like, why you paid to do this? Why are you doing this? And, and you have those moments through time um, and sitting in a storm. We actually had pretty good weather up until high camp. And then we were, we were in a crazy storm for five days up top. And um, that's where you really learn too. not just physically and skilled do you need to be trained, but it's so much the mental and emotional. That's when you know you're ready for the bigger mountains. You cannot go into it unless you can sit with yourself for five days and keep yourself together and have that patience and, and that solitude. And so we, I, my tent mates are starting to lose their mind. They start questioning the guides. They don't know what they're doing. We need to do this and freaking out. I just remember actually being so happy that for five days, I got to be in a super warm sleeping bag, eat whatever I wanted, sleep and read. And I haven't had a vacation like that in forever. <laughs> so I think when you have, you've got to have like a really good attitude into that kind of thing and just get yourself mentally in a positive place because on day six, we woke up, the sun was out and it was time to go for summit. And that was going to be a long day. You know, I think, and, and you've climbed, you know, that the actual journey is absolute struggle. It, it's absolute pain. It's as, absolute questioning yourself. But that moment you step on summit, it all washes away. I get goosebumps. I get goosebumps right now. And that feeling that you pushed through the impossible, you pushed through what your brain told you you can't do is such a satisfying, amazing feeling that everyone should learn to experience in their lives and pushing their boundaries. And you don't have to climb a mountain to be able to do that. That just happens to be what 
what I love to do. But that feeling is, is as we're so hard on ourselves, um, I think as human beings, and I have that moment where I'm proud. I'm so proud of myself. I'm proud of myself. And that's a really like amazing thing that we should do more often for ourselves. If we were standing with you on top of Denali, when you reached the summit, what would we see? It was actually, it was, we, uh, it was blue skies with just kind of some, some, um, uh, oh gosh, I wish I remembered my cloud terminology right now, but just kind of flat clouds. Same thing as you see on, on, on any summit, you know, you, you, you see the earth bend. Um, you see, especially in the Denali range, the mountaintops all around you are breathtaking. And it is far as you can see, and it looks extreme and jagged. And it's this feeling also of the hard work you put in that you you just have this moment of realizing no one gets to see this unless you did the work to get here. And that's a special feeling. Um, you would see teammates hugging each other. You see other teams on their way up and you know you just have this special moment of 10 minutes maybe until the next team's up there. You see people getting their banners out to thank people. And for me, I, again, I always have a moment with my father and thank him for standing with me, guiding me, keeping me safe and just sharing that moment with him and his spirit. And then, and then generally it's a, then you've got to get the heck off that mountain because <laughs> this is the other thing that a lot of people don't realize. Uh, and actually even on Aconcagua, I remember we had a guy with us where we were, we were close to the top. That's a long summit day. We're close to the top. And one of our guys was, uh, our guide told him, you can't go any further, but people don't realize. And, and, and especially on Denali, it takes a long time to get the top, but you have to have the energy to get down. Most accidents happen on the way down because you're weak, you're tired. And so, yay, celebrate, but now let's get, let's keep our heads together and let's get down safely because we're in rope teams and you've got to be conscious of each other and, and getting yourself down safe. So yeah, it's a brief, beautiful moment and then get the heck out of Dodge. <laughs> and if I recall right there, there are parts that on that, uh, summit approach, a few missteps here or there, and it's a long drop with a very sudden stop. Yeah, that was, I mean, that really was a great, um, you know, people are always like, oh, should I do Denali or Everest first or which one is harder? And the harder, uh, I could go in between both of those, but I do recommend doing Denali first. There are some ridges that are impressive and yeah, it's thousands of feet, thousands of feet. You're roped in, you got to trust your team. And that's a good, that's a good um, thing to practice. And I just remember thinking, I remember tearing up thinking, this is so gorgeous. And I should not tell my mother about this. She will not be very happy, but, but I loved it. It was amazing. And, 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 and yeah. And um, yeah, the ridges right before summit too. I, I just remember thinking like, you are doing this and you are not afraid. I love this. <laughs> so yeah, after Denali, that was when I talked to my guides afterwards and I was like, okay, I felt great do you think I'm ready for Everest? And that's when they're like, yes. And we're putting you in touch with who we think you should go with. And so that was for me, I remember the first thing I could do is call my sister, and my mom. And I was just so happy. And like, we did it. We, we summoned it on July 4th. I remember that America. <laughs> uh, it's funny. You talk about Mount Baker. That's where I went to uh, mountaineering school too. Oh yeah. That's a classic place to, to go learn all your uh, snow skills. It is. It is. I'm so glad I did that too. Everything came in handy, building those snow walls, <laughs> your boot box, all of it. You've made one attempt at Everest, but that was cut short. What happened? Yeah. And actually, you know, what's crazy is uh, I was, I was set to go in 2020 and I was two weeks from leaving when everything got canceled because of COVID. That's when COVID hit. So I had trained, I came off of Denali in July and I was going right into Everest that spring, but it got, so I trained so hard, it got canceled. So, and for those who don't know, there's a small window for Everest. You have to wait an entire year. So I trained in a whole nother year and ready 2021. I knew it was a risk going because we are still in the middle of a pandemic, but the mountain was going to be open. And I was so excited. I felt so mentally and physically ready. And I didn't want to take the chance of another year and then not feeling it. So I went. And we, there's so many precautions taken, but COVID, the Delta variant was going through the Kumbu Valley, like wildfire. 
And unfortunately, not very many people in Nepal had been um, vaccinated. And so we all were, most of us were vaccinated before we went. So we were on the mound. My team, we, we were so careful with each other. We did not talk to other teams. We did not go to other camps. Um, a lot of the people in our camps and the other camps got it. They were sent down to, 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 and then maybe they could come back, but it was everywhere. We stayed protected. We had been on the mount. We'd done our rotations. We were hours from leaving for summit bid and our climbing shirt, but we're at the end of the season. We've been on the mount for six and a half weeks. You get lax. Our climbing Sherpa went up one day before us and the climbing Sherpa, this is their mountain. This is their home. They have brothers, cousins working in other teams. It's hard to ask a culture to not be their culture. It's hard to ask family members not to talk to family members. Anyway, it went through camp two and it wiped out almost every single teammate that we had. And everyone was ordered off the mountain. We had two Sherpa on oxygen at camp two. It was the right decision to make. We had everyone come down, everyone tested. We did not have enough. um, We did not have enough support staff to go for the summit. And so it was over. The climb was over. And I might've been, I was totally ready. My team was ready. We were strong, but it was done. And um, right away, I knew, I know the difference between devastating and disappointing. I was disappointed. Uh, There were people who died on that mountain. That's devastating. I was disappointed. And, but immediately I was like, well, all right, guess I'm training another year. And right away, the fire in my belly, I just knew I'd go go back the next year. So, um, yeah. So anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm getting ready. And I, I did, um, well, we can get to it, but yeah, I just got back from Antarctica, but I I'll hopefully be leaving for Everest for my second attempt in two months. Let's talk about Antarctica, Mount Vincent and the South pole. Yes. Oh man. Tell us about that. Absolutely unreal. And so from my aerospace side, of course, you know, what I couldn't help but think about is all of the, you know, all of the training um, and life sciences that goes on for lunar habitats, Mars habitats. And this is the perfect example of where a lot of that technology and things they've learned or, or principles will, will play for, for space. Because th- it's so remote there. And we're, we're there during their summer. So it's light the entire time. But the people were there the entire winter. Um, it, it's very hard to get flights in and out. We, I was there for probably four to five weeks. The majority of the time was just waiting, waiting for little planes to go here and there because of logistics of weather. It was absolutely insane. But to fly over the different areas of Antarctica, you, you can't stop staring at the window. It is one of the most remote and rugged and extreme and beautiful and sci-fi and special places I have ever experienced. The South Pole is, uh, you know, pretty much just a desert, but snow. And it's a high plain desert. So you, you get, I did the last degree ski. You get dropped off in the middle of nowhere in high winds, 89 degrees. And you go your 60 nautical miles ski, pulling a sled behind you with all of your stuff to the South Pole. So it's about 70 miles. They take off and just leave you and you're looking around and there is nothing that the, uh, there is nothing except for just flat, you know, windblown snow and a match like sky that matches the colors, just all white everywhere. And you just start going. And it's about 8,000 feet to 9,000 feet, the South Pole. And that one was a mental challenge. It's the same thing over and over. You don't talk to other people. You're just trying to keep from getting frostbite. You're a lot in your head. Um, you're trying, yeah, it, it, but it was a good mental practice as well. And we ended up at the South pole for new year's Eve, um, which is very special. I had rubbed you have what well, we had these, um, three pin boots for these skis. And I knew better than to not have my own boots. Cause I have custom orthotics anyway, but yeah, it completely rubbed this horrendous, like larger than a dollar, you know, a dollar coin on my back heel, just flesh wound deep. And so I was going through that for three days. And like pain is temporary, pain is temporary. And wondering what that would do to my climb because I was going to climb Vincent next, but you just keep going. You patch it up, you suck it up and you go. So we were at the South Pole for New Year's Eve, which was really amazing because you could actually, we went out to the, the actual pole and you could just walk around 360 degrees, be like, I'm in 2022, 
I'm back in 2021. I'm in 2022. So that was really fun. We had a great night. Yeah, it was fun. And then flew out of there. And then we had to wait to get a flight over to Mount Vincent. So I was going to do that next. Because honestly, if you're going to go all the way to Antarctica, you might as well do both if you're going to do both. Because uh, it's a lot of money. (laughs) And so uh, we were actually this wonderful uh, woman. Lucy River Bulk, she's UK, and this was her seventh summit, actually. Amazing. She was the first woman to do seven summits and uh, run the four deserts. And her and I became fast friends. We're tent mates through all this. So her and I are at Union Glacier, and they're just like, you aren't going to get out uh, for three days. Storm's coming in. And we're like, oh. So we started to relax. And then and then Antarctica style, we have a plane coming. You're going to leave in 20 minutes. Get your stuff. Oh, my gosh. So we, we go and get our stuff, and we are on this prop plane, which is fuel and food and just us. We're like, what is going on? So we fly into Vincent base camp and all, everyone else is up on the mountain. Everyone else. We're the only kind of clients there. They've got um, some staff. And then all of a sudden we see this entourage coming down the mountain and we have a, a champagne uh, in plastic glass handed to us. We're like, what is happening? So this entourage comes down and it's the American billionaire, uh, Jared Isaacman, who has his besties with him. And then he hired Conrad Anker, Ed Vischers, and Dave Hahn to be his guides. So within 30 minutes, I'm sipping champagne with Conrad Anker, <laughs> talking about the best baseball hat to wear on expedition. Dave Hahn, I've met many times, who is just a fabulous human being. And I just realized again, I'm like, this is my life. How extraordinary is this moment. And um, yeah, then that's how it kicked it off. And at that point, our team from climbing the seven summits had come down. Uh, they, they, we had missed that climb because our ski went late. And um, so now it's just bulks and me, no one's else could be on the mountain. And our, our, um, one of the owners of climbing the seven summits, Tendi, he's like, I'll take you guys back up. So Tendi bulks and I just went back up. We were the only ones on the mountain and we did a summit of Mount Vincent in 57 hours up and down. And it was, it was absolutely epic and beautiful. And it was like a little baby Denali for sure. You pull your sled, fixed line, you know, really steep fixed lines, summit day, the only ones on that mountain. And that was special. My dad was with me. And um, the only one, the only thing though, on this one is I did end up getting a little frostbite on my fingers. I, uh, I was a lucky one. I got away easy people. This, Antarctica is cold. People are getting on their faces, their thighs, their feet, their fingers, but, but I'll, I'll, I'll recover. I'll recover in time. But yeah, it was, it is a magical, special, pristine place. And the thing that is amazing is um, ALE who kind of takes care of all the logistics and the teams that come through. They have a lot of rules. They're well thought out and they are stewards of that land. They take such good care of everything so that people can continue to enjoy it clean and pristine and taking care of the way it should be. They are not, they, that place is not trashed like so many mountains. Contrast for me, the Megan who stood atop Mount Vincent from the Megan who stood atop Kilimanjaro. How are you different? Oh, we are such different ladies. (laughs) Um, You know, I always say, and it's so true. I am never the same woman coming out of a climb that I was going in. I transform on every single one. And it's, I think, first of all, it's because I am part of this is I want that journey of awareness. I want that journey of transformation. And I think when you're open to that and you're open to being vulnerable, you're open to learning. That is such a Petri dish of growth. And you get so much more out of it when you allow yourself to be open to everything going on around you. So the difference um, one is you know, we talked about me being a little kid and having those insecurities uh, from from suffering from dyslexia, but you almost learn to fake it till you make it attitude. And that was a big part of my life. And I tell people a lot that all the time, fake it till you make it, fake it until like, say it till you believe it. 
And so that, I think that's a good way to start on a lot of things and pushing yourself. And so through my own journey, I would get a little bit further and a little bit further of really believing in myself. But over this time and pushing my boundaries and allowing myself to fail and get back up and to the point where I realize if I'm not failing, I'm not trying and seeking out that challenge and obstacle and struggle, going from avoiding it, being afraid of it to seeking it out is a difference in who I am. And I think being in my 40s and really taking on these major, major mountains, I'm in the right headspace for it. So the difference now since the Denali, the Everest, the Vincent is I finally clicked over to a place in myself where this little girl who had to prove who she was, I'm finally good enough to myself, like really to the the deepest, darkest crevices of my soul, those little hidden spots. I'm finally good enough to myself. And that is such a beautiful, free feeling. I feel limitless. And I feel like I, anything I do, whether I really succeed, I just have a different level of what success is. I'm good enough. And that's something that I truly want to try to share to other people so that they can unlock them in themselves, because that freedom is absolutely amazing. And you don't have to climb Everest to find that. (laughs) I just had to. (laughs) But it's in the struggle. It, it's in the struggle. It's in putting yourself out there. It's risk of failure. There's failure, learning from failure. It's, it's all part of the journey. It is. And without, without having to push yourself, without feeling pain, with, without that, you don't grow as fast. And, and I have so many friends, um, I've seen their kids grow up. And they want to protect, especially, you know, our, our age, I think the kids that, and and I don't have any kids that did not happen for me, but they don't want their kids to struggle. They don't want their kids to feel pain. What I try to help them understand is you're doing them a disservice (laughs) by not letting them figure this out because they don't have the coping skills to take on hard things. I see, and even like um, junior engineers that come in right out of college. That's one of the things that I really try to mentor also is, is well, the, the, the moment of discomfort or the moment of, of why I don't know how to do that. They just give up. You are not going to be able to find, like to reach your full potential unless you're willing to scrape your knees, fall flat on your face and know how to get up. <laughs> and that is something I think that is just missing. You're, you're robbing people the experience of really finding out who they are by not letting them feel struggle and pain. And they don't learn the lesson that, yeah, you fall down, but as you said, pain is temporary and you do get through it. You do. You can get up, you can heal and move on. Yeah. Let's talk about the future climbs. You still have Everest. Yes. And is that on, has that been uh, booked yet? Yes. (laughs) Yes, <laughs> it is booked. Honestly, I am a go. And actually, I just I just had a point with my uh, my my hand surgeon here in Vail uh, yesterday, and we are working together the plan just to get my fingers healthy. Um, he thinks I'm going to be completely fine and ready to go. I'm ready. 2022 is the year for me. So then later this year, I am booked for Carstens Pyramid. That's been canceled the last you know since COVID started too. Because right now I think it's still really hard to get in and out of Australia. I'll eventually do that one too. But um, so that I, I hope to finish the seven summits this year. Then, and, and at that point, I'll be the first you know rocket scientist to do the seven summits. The Grand Slam, I will have the last degree ski to the North Pole left. So plan on that spring 2023. What's really fun is so now my new bestie, Books UK, she and I want to do it together. And that will be her Grand Slam as well in spring 2023 for North Pole. Now, Megan, you've talked about giving back, especially to especially to younger women who may, coming of age, venturing out and taking on challenges. How do you do that? And, and what do you do to, to help the next generation come up? That's, that's such a good question. You know, and I see this, I see this in 
in work and engineering, um, also outdoor, but, but you know, it, it, it spans everywhere, right? Like we, we all need mentors in our life. And, and I talk to, to anyone about giving time to, to go speak to people. You know, I really, I, I definitely have two passions um, for giving back. And one is definitely um, also talking to just any youth about learning disabilities and, and to women about not just knowing their worth, but having the courage to live their worth. And so many women are taught still to this day to, to accommodate, to be less than. And it, it definitely takes a lot of courage to say, no, I deserve better in career and relationships and all sorts of different things. So with both of these things, talking and talking to kids about learning disabilities, it's the exact same thing. You don't, you, you don't deserve less. You deserve full potential. You, you deserve full opportunities like everybody else. But like everybody else and, and with any of these things, you need to work hard for it and you need to believe in yourself. And the way that we achieve that is we take the time to go and speak and let people, women, youth, meet people that have done what they aspire to do. Show them that it is possible. I, I kind of like to say, like, I, I don't, <laughs> you know, the things that I'm doing, and especially because I kind of hang out in that community now, I'm like, I, I'm not doing anything special. Like, I'm just choosing to talk about it. I'm, and, and for me, what I want to tell people with learning disabilities or, or women, I just want to be an example that you can reach your full potential if you set your mind to it and you don't give up and you keep going. And they need to hear that and know that it is possible. I just hope to be an example um, through, and it can be through social media, you know, sharing my journeys, sharing the good days and the bad days, or it's actually using my time to go speak to schools, to go speak to companies, speak to women's groups. And if public speaking is not your thing, then you can do a small, there's so many programs out there where you could just do one-on-one mentorship and anyone can give back and share their experiences with someone younger than them. We have all gone through something difficult. It's life. That is life. So everyone has a struggle they can share or share um, an, an opportunity with someone else. And so how we do that is taking the time to be of service. And, and I think that's how you, you really start encouraging others. One of the ways you do that, I believe, is through your website, ggrit.com. Tell me about yes. that. Yes. So, okay. So I, I've started um, GRIT. What it stands for is gratitude, growth, resilience, integrity, and tenacity. And to me, I've kind of come up with that oh, probably over the last 10 years. How do you overcome challenge? How do you take on obstacles? How do you push yourself and start believing in yourself? And I have come up with those five tools. That is how I think you do it. And all of it, the base is gratitude. No matter what you're going through, if you think about it, no matter what you're going through, if you can think of one thing you're grateful for that sets your mind to a positive way. If you can find one thing you're, you're grateful for, it's kind of hard to be mad at the other stuff. You keep focusing on being grateful and learning to grow and having resilience and having integrity with your word and tenacity. So I've made um, a website and of course I have a day job and I'm training. And so it's all the stuff I'm trying to do on the side, but I really am trying to build a platform. And like I've talked about on this is to help teach others how to embrace those techniques to reach that, that full potential of themselves. And you know, grit, grit to me is it's a daily choice. It's a choice you make every single day to keep going, to get back up, to take one more step forward, choosing to rise. And it is not easy a lot of times. And there's there's some days where I'm like, I'm just gonna cry today, but tomorrow I'll get back up. We all have that, we're all human. But through my website, then um, I'm trying to build out, you know, slowly help with the tools, but right now it's really just so people can follow my journey. Um, again, follow the good, the bad, be inspired and, and kind of see what it's like to go to these places and the skills that are needed and experience new things. And the other thing the, that I'm just starting to do is I really do want to be giving back, not just speaking to schools, which I do, 
but I do speak to companies and I want to give everyone that opportunity to believe in themselves. Um, so yeah, please go to my website. And then on Instagram too, it's G-G-R-I-T. And um, you can see everything I just did in Antarctica and then the training that's coming up and uh, then leaving for Everest. And the fun thing about Nepal and Everest, I did this last year, is there's Wi-Fi at base camp. So I actually get to share the journey as we go along and we make it interactive. And people would write me notes like, what do the bathrooms look like? I'm like, I'll go film it for you. So anyway, it's a really, it's a really fun experience and kind of give you a taste of what this whole this whole mountaineering world is like. Megan, this has been a great conversation. It has and, been. <laughs> you know, you are an inspiration. You, um, you. I, as I started out, a, a woman, a, a person of remarkable talents and someone that, you know, my daughters and my granddaughter will look up to. All of us will. I don't think it uh, matters whether male or female. It's the accomplishment that shows everybody what you can overcome and what you can do. It is inspiring and you need to get your story out there. Thank you. I, you know, I, what you just said, it, I, I just, I did have a moment in Antarctica and, and you're right. You know what? I, I focus on women, but it is for anybody. And for the first time through all my journeys, I've had friends write me, my daughter, you know, I'm having my daughter follow this. She's so excited. I'm, I, you know, my daughter wants to meet you and, and we'll do calls. I would like you to mentor my daughter for the first time in Antarctica. I had a friend, write, And she's like, Hey, I want you to know my nephew. He is so inspired by what you're doing right now. And he's following you. And I thought, yes, that is a like, right. It doesn't matter. I, I want us to get to that point where it doesn't matter if it's male or female. And that was an amazing moment for me where I was like, good on you guys. You know, that's fantastic. So you're right. And thank you for saying so. If literally one person, if I can help inspire one person to push themselves further than they thought they could go, man, it's, it's worth, it's worth all of this. It's worth all of this. We're responsible for each other. Please come back and tell us about Everest and the North Pole. I would love to. And next time, let's do it so we're actually drinking whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Megan, we'll see you down the road. All right. Thanks so much. Been great. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you down the road when we get together again, share a glass of whiskey, and hear more stories of adventure as told by those who live them. Until then... Check us out at michaeljreinhardt.com, where you'll find more of my work as an adventure photojournalist. Photos, videos, and articles of interesting people, mysterious places, and exotic cultures from the wild places of the world. <laughs>